Welcome to the Cosmos in You podcast, where we interview scientists, philosophers, and leading thinkers to discuss the nature of our reality and the impact it has on our daily lives. Hello and welcome to the Cosmos in You. This is your host, Susanna Scully. Thank you so much for tuning in. This is a podcast where we explore the nature of our reality and how it impacts our daily lives. And today's guest just fits into that perfectly. I'm thrilled to have you listen in. Today we interview Jeff Lieberman, who explores the connections between the arts, sciences, education, creativity, and consciousness. He hosted the show Time Warp on the Discovery Channel, reminding us how little our senses detect and understand about reality. He shows his sculptures internationally, exploring our unseen interconnectedness and interdependence. And having finished four degrees at MIT, yes, you heard that correctly, four degrees at MIT in physics, math, mechanical engineering, and media arts and sciences, he is now exploring how the evolution of consciousness can cease human suffering. So in this episode, we discuss the two phases of his spiritual exploration and what he learned along the way. How his study of physics from MIT has influenced his current paradigm of our existence, the different types of somatic practices that we can use in our own healing, what he wishes someone had told him when he was 15 and depressed that would have saved him years of suffering, and finally, how the limits of our perception of reality affects our daily lives. You know, as I mentioned at the end of this interview with Jeff, I think this was one that really touched on um, the mind, body, and soul, uh, and heart. He really goes, you know, is obviously incredibly intelligent and um, introspective and um, has studied so much, has been just, um, has allowed curiosity to guide him through life. And so we get to learn through that. And so it was a real joy to interview him. And um, so I'm excited for you guys to take a listen. So Without further ado, let's jump in. Welcome, Jeff. Thanks so much for being here with us today. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So so what I thought we'd do is have you start with telling us a bit about your background, your journey, your story, because I know you there is a wide breadth that you have in your background. So if you wouldn't mind telling our audience a bit about that. Sure. Yeah. It's definitely, I feel a lot like a... Jack of all trades, master of none, as they say. <laughs> I, I've kind of traveled in a lot of different spheres. And um, I would say first, you know, maybe kind of conceptually or intellectually, I, I grew up doing a lot of artwork and at the same time being really interested in math and science and kind of living in those one foot in each world for most of my growing up time, you know, going to math competitions on the weekends and also just painting, playing music, all that sort of thing. Um, and when I went to school, I went to MIT here in Boston and I, I studied physics and math while doing a lot of music and artwork on the side. And by the time I got to grad school, um, I was more and more interested in building physical objects, uh, kind of going from the theoretical world of the way the universe is put together to the actual kind of applied world of how to put objects together and I started working on robotics in grad school. And so that really started, it was the first time I fused those two sides of my life together where I was actually working on 
art installations that were made of robots. So I had to learn all the engineering, all the electrical engineering, the software design, all that sort of thing, while at the same time fundamentally trying to create aesthetic experiences for people. Um, and the more that I spent time in robotics, so, you know, so I went from the completely abstract worlds of mathematics into the physical domain of how the universe is constructed into engineering, actually constructing things. And then I got more and more interested in the limits of human perception and how what we see around us is this tiny little lens on the actual reality that we're in. And so a lot of my artwork started to use all of this, you know, different background uh, for that goal to kind of try to help explore the limits of human perception and ha and engage experiences that really like when you see the kind of artwork that I focus on, it usually forces you to call into question the way that your own perception is working. And, you know, that got me into working with slow motion video, things that your eyes can never see yourself, uh, eventually hosting a TV show on Discovery Channel about slow motion called Time Warp, which was, I think this is now eight years ago. It feels like a <laughs> lifetime wow. ago. Um, and then from there, I would say is when I really had a, a breakdown, um, <laughs> you know, I, that was where the, the things turned in the long run in my favor, but it was probably the hardest time in my life. Um, I had everything. I had a TV show, social esteem, making good money, good relationship, good place to live, all that sort of thing. And just felt that hollowness that mm -hmm. I think, you know, most human beings feel when they give themselves the time to look for it. Uh, we, we're really good at distracting ourselves exactly yep. from that feeling. <laughs> yep. uh, and I, I hit a dead end because I had tried to, I had actually accomplished all of the things on Maslow's hierarchy that I felt were really going to fill that void. Um, and so I had nowhere left to turn. And that really changed the direction from looking at all this engineering as an end in itself to focusing on how my own consciousness was constructed. How does a human experience get put together from the moment you're born to the moment, you know, to the adult life? And so that's really turned a lot of this, this study from the outward world to the inner world. Uh, and I still consider myself a, a young student at that right now. Uh, there's so many questions I have about everything. There were, there was just there's like, a mouthful, there yeah. you go. I'm like, well, well, hold on, back up. Um, so let me, in all of that, it sounds, in all of your history, it sounds like you had over the period, these insights that came to you. And I, I imagine they didn't come to you in a moment, but, but there's definitely a theme of, of insight. Can you tell us a bit about, you know, what they were like, how you came to them. Um, you know, a few that I heard you say is one of them is, you know, the perception of our reality. And then, you know, most recently when you talked about the breakdown is your, um, what you realized about, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs and is that fulfilling? And so tell me more about insights. You know, when you, when you ask it, it, it kind of makes me think of two different types of response, which I think you highlighted, you know, there's the first response, like, the more I would get into some field of exploration, like physics or engineering, uh, the more that I would explore that field, the more new types of questions would come up. Mm. Um, there's a great physicist who I'm forgetting who it was. But he says, he says, if you think about all of our knowledge as an island in the ocean of the unknown, the more that we build up our knowledge, the bigger the island gets, but also the shoreline of what kind of questions we can ask about the, the unknown also gets bigger. Mm. So it's, it's this really deep paradox. The more that we know, the more we realize that we don't know. Yeah. 
And, and that has gone, that has really been a theme in my life of, you know, I would say I was the typical teenager who really thought I understood what the hell reality was. Uh-huh. And I was pretty certain about it. And I feel like every year that goes by, I'm, I'm absolutely less certain about everything. <laughs> um, and, and, and enjoying that uncertainty more and more. So, you know, for me, the, the earlier transitions and insights were always about like, oh, you know, as I explored physics, now I have this deeper intuition and desire to build stuff in the manifest world. And as I do that, I'm starting to engineer things that show me my own limits of my perception. And so that, you know, kind of every exploration would naturally yield to the next genre, you could say, you know, so I'm, I'm a hopper. I just kind of hop around. I don't know what I'm going to be doing in 2018 at all. Um, cause my interests are always kind of changing based on, based on the search itself. Um, but the other form of insight that you're alluding to, to me is the breakdowns, um, which to me are the actually, you know, in some sense, the more important form of insight. Like I, I've very rarely been the kind of person that has this, you know, go to a meditation retreat and like the sky opens up and God tells me, okay, everything's, everything's great now. Usually <laughs> Does that me, happen to anybody? <laughs> I think it's actually a really sad thing. I think it's a part of spiritual salesmanship yeah. where it does happen to some people. And those are the people that end up telling the story the most. And so you get this really horrible slanted view that like that's the moment you're waiting for yeah and so you know you go to sit to meditation and how how many people sit to meditation and actually are paying attention to their breath most of them are like okay how many more breaths until that's the right. sky opens that's up? right I'm waiting <laughs> so, like, there's like no present moment awareness at all because it's all forecasting from the way that we've heard the salesmanship from other people um for me the insights have always come you know, uh, on like day seven of a silent retreat when I just finally totally hit a wall and I totally give up on something. Mm. And then in the like wake of tears and grief, I realize that I'm still there and I'm fine and I don't need to believe that thing anymore. Mm. So those kind of insights to me, when you let go of false beliefs that have been completely constraining your level of life, uh, those are are usually accompanied with some kind of deep grief because you're you have to how do i say it you have to actually realize how long you've imprisoned yourself mm. and and of course there's going to be grief when you realize how long you've imprisoned yourself but it's such a beautiful thing to allow that grief through the body in the recognition that you're actually freer than you thought you were you know, I saw one of the books on your website that you would recommend is The Untethered Soul by Michael Singer, which mm-hmm. is one of my favorite books as well. And what you're alluding to is I think about in his book, he talks about this almost like uh, how our very being is like a field, right? And he talks about sort of the fences that we build mm. Mm. and our own sense of like that we can keep expanding and that the land is out there, but we sort of self impose these limits. Is that what you're, what you're talking about? Totally. You know, he, he builds this metaphor of building a house for your own protection in this Mm -hmm. limitless field full of sunshine. And eventually as you build this house, that's safer and safer, you have to put candles in it to kind of keep the light in there. But they're all you remember eventually of the fact that there's this hugely bright sun outside. Yeah. It's an amazing metaphor. And I, and I think, one thing that's important for me to to say w- with that metaphor is like we build those defenses because we were unsafe growing up. Um, we build those defenses in our lives because we're geniuses and because we have a really deep intelligence that allows us to stop ourselves from being completely overwhelmed. 
And all of us have different types of things that happen during our upbringing, you know, and, and trauma is a really strong word, but like every one of us was traumatized like every day growing up in some way, mm-hmm. whether we were not necessarily grounded by our families enough that we felt safe, whether we were terrorized by our siblings, uh, whether we weren't allowed to express our griefs or our fears or our angers, you know, all those kind of things we're really sensitive to what is allowed and isn't allowed when we're when we're growing up and we're really really vulnerable and young. And so the the deep intelligence in every newborn starts to take on these protections to keep ourselves from kind of going into those spaces that don't feel safe. And the tricky thing is 30 years later you're running a defense pattern that actually served you when you were 4 years old but has no relevance in your life anymore. Oh gosh, isn't this true? And um, so in realizing that, that each of us have these protections that we take on to keep us safe, um, what is the work that has helped you to take those down? I know you mentioned the meditation retreat. Are there, you know, Mm. what does your journey look like too? Yeah, I feel like there's, there's two major phases in, in the exploration I've taken. And the first, maybe seven years or so was, was just meditation. Mm-hmm. Um, and really, you know, when I was in high school, I was an insomniac and I was depressed and it was all based on the fact that I would ruminate about everything. Someone mm-hmm. would say one phrase to me and it would even be a nice phrase, but the tone of voice they used wouldn't exactly be the tone of voice <laughs> that I would have used. And so I would sit for two hours and analyze their internal world and what they might've meant and all this kind of thing. And 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 meditation can really give you a form of meta-awareness or metacognition to see that you have this insane person living in your head just like <laughs> complaining yeah. about everything all yeah. the time. That's totally not okay with just having no idea with what's going on. Yeah. And so in some sense, as Michael Singer says in Untethered Soul, all it's trying to do is find like a place to rest. Yeah. But it feels like it has to figure out all this stuff to rest. So I I always give this really simple experiment which is just, just take, you know, any, any listener can do this and you just take the phrase, I hear this voice saying this sentence. I hear this voice saying this sentence. You can take that phrase. I can say that out loud. And obviously I actually do hear this voice saying this sentence, Mm -hmm. but I can also say that silently. I can just think that phrase and I can notice that I can still hear that voice saying that sentence. And that, you know, I don't want to wait four minutes to let people experiment they right. can experiment on their own time. But if you just take that statement, I hear this voice saying this sentence, all of a sudden, there's a subject object relationship with your thoughts. And you realize that your thoughts are not what you are at all. You know, in fact, when you were growing up, you didn't even have language to use those thoughts. But now they never turn off in most human beings. And so we actually think this is just a fundamental part of our being. And so to me, what meditation really at its core can do is it can show you that your identity is not the content of your thoughts. And and that's a huge shift. But but what happened to me in the second, you know, major phase, and, and I still believe meditation is really powerful and a beautiful thing. And also there's a thousand forms of it. And so I can't even pretend like I know what I'm saying when I say the word meditation because okay. <laughs> it covers so many things. Um, but what I found with, with that practice is I, re- I could really disidentify my sense of identity and who I am as awareness from this personality and all the set of beliefs. But to me, in my own system, and I can't speak for everyone, but for myself, that wasn't enough to actually shift the 
the integrated understanding of reality in my body. And so I felt like the rumination went away and I kind of could walk around and, and see the peacefulness in life, but I still had chronic pain in my body hmm. and I still had fears, deep fears just about existence on earth. And the kind of understanding of myself as awareness in my head hadn't integrated into my system. And I think this, this is an ongoing thing. I, I, I don't personally believe anymore that there's a moment where all of a sudden you're integrated and you're done with the search. I think it's a, a, if people know what the term asymptote means in, in mathematics, it's a place that you get closer and closer to forever, but you never quite reach. Mm. Um, and so I believe with this work of integration that you can go into and understand deeper and deeper your belief systems, not as you conceptually believe them, but as you, as your body believes them, your beliefs about your safety, your beliefs about, is it, is it safe for me to express anger in this world? And and in my own experience, somatic practices have been way more to the root of mm. that kind of work. So, you know, a lot of somatic practices started with Wilhelm Reich, uh, if people know about that kind of work, a Reichian work. And he taught people like Alexander Lowen, who started bioenergetics, which is another somatic practice. And, and I could go on and on about the theory, but the general principle is that when you have these belief systems come into your body, you can't just unwind them in your head. You have to actually go into the body. And when you have t chronic tensions in the body, they are representations of the way that your body has learned it needs to repress certain types of expression for its own safety. And just to kind of ground that uh, with a, an actual example, mm -hmm. for me, you know, even two years ago, it was totally impossible to express anger. Hmm. Um, growing up, it wasn't really safe for me to express anger. So... I learned it as a two-year-old, not as an adult. I learned it in my body as a two-year-old that anger is the most dangerous thing. And so I had to do somatic work of actually being in a safe environment and allowed to let out what was then rage at that point. It had been repressed so much. Just allow my body to go there and realize that it was safe. And I don't know how long I'd be in talk therapy trying to do that, but it's probably several thousand years as opposed to just right. being in an environment and be allowed to experience the range of, of human dynamics. Um, there's the, you know, the, the phrase, the, the unbearable sensitivity of committing to this human experience is a line from a poem by Nell Aurelia. Um, so, you know, more and more as time goes on, and this is a mouthful of an answer that you know, of the question you asked, but more and more, I, you know, I find that the, the head can open to a deeper understanding of ourselves. And then the challenge becomes, how do I live that in my body? Yeah, this is fascinating because, you know, a lot of people talk about meditation. It's something that we all hear a lot about. We do not hear as much about somatic practices. Um, so <laughs> right, not yet. Right. And I love that. And so, uh, will you tell us a bit more about the ones that you have practiced, um, other ones that are out there or just, you know, t I'd just love to hear, to hear more about it. Mm. Sure. So, uh, I'll give a couple like examples and maybe a couple recommendations so that people can find more, more work on this line, because as you said, it's really not part of our culture yet. Mm -mm. Um, a as little as meditation is becoming part of our culture, you know, yeah. this is a, an, even a niche compared to that. Um, the first thing I would say is that there are forms of meditation that are somatic practices. So if someone goes to like the classic 10 day silent Vipassana retreats that were started by, uh, SN Goenka, 
those are a body scanning form of meditation where what you're doing is you're you're increasing the resolution with which you can sense into your own body and this is like a total you know enigma like when by the time most of us are grown-ups we don't even realize how disconnected we are from our bodies you know it took me it took me a long time to realize that it was really hard for me to even sense below my hips into my legs right there was such a deep disconnection but in a in a practice like vipassana you're literally just scanning every single part of your body and just trying to wait until you feel some sensation there and if you spend time uh, even on one 10 day retreat you will absolutely notice how variable that is based on your attention and how much sensation that was your full 100% present experience as a newborn, it was all you had was sensation, how much of that you've kind of put away to favor conceptual understanding and thinking about things. Um, so I'd say that's the most basic thing. The most basic skill in somatic practice that I know of is to learn to actually feel sensation in your body and and to even understand that emotion in your body comes from sensation in your body. That you can start to make these deep connections like, Ah, what is this fear? Or what was this fear just before it turned into fear? Oh, it was this little tightness right in, right under my belly button. Or, you know, it was this little creeping thing coming up the back of my neck. Like starting to actually connect back into the body and sensation source of these emotions, it becomes really, really plain to see in, in experience that then that stuff turns into your thinking about stuff and ruminating about stuff and kind of uh, anxiously thinking over and over in cycles and loops about things. So kind of it lets you, you tease apart how some of that perception works as a process. Um, I would I would immediately have to recommend this book called The Five Personality Patterns <laughs> by Stephen Kessler, which to me is the the best source that I have found for a, a Western reader to read about somatic work. Okay. And the five personality patterns is an overview of the five main ways that human beings have learned to defend themselves against being overwhelmed. And, you know, just to give two examples, if it's interesting for the, the listeners, the, the first challenge that you have as an infant is, is life safe on earth? Can I be here in a body? And so the first challenge is straight up safety. And if you don't have it, it's straight up terror. Mm. So that if you didn't have that kind of safety, then you will have defended yourself in a certain type of way, typically by going into your head, into outer space, into imagination. So a lot of people that have that kind of terror as kids become much more into subtle energy work. They're much more into meditation and kind of engaging with the unity of the consciousness and this sort of thing. Um, six months later, your main, your main challenge is, can I receive nurturing from the world? This is when you're, you're breastfeeding, you have no control over your survival, you have to receive all that nurturing from your mother. And then the question becomes, can I be nurtured? And am I, am I able to basically metaphorically and literally, can I drink until I'm full from this planet? And if that's not taken care of, you know, and, and none of us have 100% unconditional love all the time. So we all have a mix of all these patterns. But if that's not taken care of, I will tend to feel a sort of form of emptiness that only feels like it can be fulfilled from somebody else. And this is what's called the, the merging pattern or the oral process, where we tend to get in relationships and need that other person to fulfill our mm -hmm. own little hole. 
And so that's very different from terror, for example. So it, the book goes on and on, but this is a very classic thing that comes from a hundred years ago from Wilhelm Reich's work that really exposes you. And I can't even tell you how many people that I know that I've given this book to that read one of the chapters and they think that he's writing a biography of them. Wow. You just find the pattern that you go to and it's like, holy crap. This guy knows. My <laughs> he's got my number. Called. Yeah. And, and I'm telling you that the power of it is that each type of that pattern has a certain type of somatic work that's going to be most effective to unwinding your need for that pattern. Mm-hmm. Got it. And to your point, this work, I don't want to say it never ends, but it's a continual journey. I believe it's a continual journey. Mm-hmm. I have not reach that other place. And I think, I think the place that you can reach is that you fully are leaning into that journey and you're not resisting it anymore. Mm. So where that goes may go forever, but you kind of internally make a decision that you are fully engaging with this human experience and you are not going to hold back and resist it anymore. There's a, my favorite mystic probably of all time is a Advaita Vedanta teacher named Nisargadatta. And he says, he, he says it's a three-phase process, and this is like my, one of my favorite metaphors of all time. He says, first, you're in a cage and you're surrounded by tigers. Second, you're outside the cage and you see the tigers all inside the cage. The final stage, you open the cage and you ride the tigers. Mm. <laughs> that is good. So good. <laughs> oh, that is because you're not changing the tiger, Mm-mm, right? Mm-mm, the tiger's there. The tiger's there. Yeah. Um, I, I tell people a lot and I tell myself a lot, like, if I'm afraid of something, there's a charge there. And if I take away the label of fear and I just see that there's a charge there, there's actually always an excitement about the thing I'm afraid of. So what happens if I start to lean into those things that terrify me? You know, like some people just could care less about those things. If I'm afraid, it's actually a sign that that's where some of my life force is hiding is right behind that fear. Um, and so that's become more and more of a practice is to lean into those things, you know, at your own speed and at your own time, but to lean toward the thing that you find resistance from, because there's probably real deep excitement about that thing as well. Ooh, hold on. I'm just going to think about this. So if I'm afraid of something, I know that some of my life force is hiding in there, right? Let me use, let me just think of a practical example of this. Um, well, if I think about what I'm afraid of, I can think of like, uh, physical things like jumping off the dock I'm afraid of, or you think of fear of, um, or is it more like metaphorical, like afraid of public speaking or, you know what I mean? What's a, I, I think it's, I think it's both, but I think public speaking is maybe a, an easier example. Okay. Yeah. Especially because um, so many people are afraid of that. So that's a good one to go with. Yeah. You know that it like ranks higher than people's fear of death. When I you're, know. When you <laughs> I know. I think it's crazy. Um, well, it's just funny because I'm not afraid of public speaking at all, which mm. I've always found to be strange in and of itself. But, um, so it, it's what you said exactly. Why the, the, the thing is the same. Why are some people afraid of it and some people aren't, you know, right. yeah. like to me, you know, there's a deep fear of, of being judged. Mm. And so if I, if I live with that fear of being judged and I don't confront it, I will always orient my activity and my expression to minimize judgment. Mm, If I, if I lean into it and I start speaking and I realize, you know what, 
people are judging me all the time. No matter no what. No matter what <laughs> totally, I do. Which is true. Yes. And, 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 it, and we know that's true conceptually, but to do it, your body learns it. Mm. And that's a totally different thing. And that took me like 10 years of work in my head to realize that like your head knowing something and your actual body knowing something are totally different processes. And so you go in and you public speak and it, it drives you mad and, and you get more and more okay with the fear and you realize how intense it is to stand in front of a thousand people and how freeing it is and how exciting it is and you know how much it forces your attention on the present moment uh, to do that kind of thing. And after practice, then it just becomes something that you've integrated in yourself. Hmm. You know, I don't even, I don't know if humans are so adaptable. I don't know of anything that a human being can do a hundred times and still have a, a basic fear of. Like I have a friend who went to brain surgery school and, you know, like two couple years into it, you're doing two brain surgeries a day. Wow. You know, I'm sure the first time you do that, it's got to be the most terrifying experience in your life. And now he just wants to have the right music on so that he can, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Like how malleable is a human yeah. creature? Hmm. <laughs> this goes back to, you know, we, we you're talking the Michael Singers, you know, the building the house and the, you know, all these things. And so at the heart of all of this, what you're describing, and if I think about even the way you approach your career, um, it is with this sense of curiosity and excitement and limit pushing. Am I right? If, if nothing, if only for the purpose of exploring. I, I would say that's true, but I don't want to give the impression that I've just been this fearless person who's just like ridden around life. Oh, right. Like there's no On problem. Tiger, like right, a, right. a lot of those decisions were fear-based in yeah. my life for sure. Mm -hmm. And more and more as I see those and expose them to the light, I lean into them and I realize that actually, you know, and maybe this is another exercise for the listeners. Like if they think about their deepest fears, they're somehow probably relations between their deepest desires. And what I found in myself over the last years is that my deepest desires of what I wanted to do in the world, I, I was still pushing down because I didn't feel like they were possible. And so sometimes we, we think that so early that we actually disconnect from even letting ourselves feel that kind of huge desire. So I think it's a really interesting experiment. The more I feel into the deep desires to work with large groups of people, um, especially, uh, you know, reform of education, for example, those are the kind of things where my first thought is like, there's no way I am up to that challenge. Mm, right. <laughs> and then I realize, oh, you know what, if I let myself feel that desire more, then I, I don't want to do that by myself. I want to get a lot of people involved in that challenge. And, and I don't have to do it myself. So there's all these like false beliefs that are associated with those desires that we've put in the closet. And, you know, it's just a really interesting, wild process to kind of unpack them. How is your knowledge of physics and the limits of our perception influenced this idea of, you know, what what is actually possible like how, is there a tie between the two for you hmm it's a really really good and tough question i 10 years ago i lived my life by what i knew as the way life was from physics um and all everything i had learned and now it almost never crosses my mind really um, yeah, because what I what I have found is that at least in the current paradigm that we're in, um, 
the more I believed in that, the more that I was actually kind of living by my own limitations in some weird way. And prior, for example, prioritizing material stuff over conscious experience is a kind of like an implicit part of the current paradigm. There's not even really a mention of experience in our paradigm. There's just objects that are doing things. Mm. But my actual life doesn't work that way. You know, I don't even know there's objects in front of me right now, except in my experience. So always my experience is the primary factor in my life. And so the more that I focus on that, the more that I realize that this cup is actually a combination of touch and sight, more than it is a fundamental object, at least in my life, the more that I, I kind of let go of the need to understand things through some kind of conceptual framework. Um, you know, no matter what your conceptual framework is, it has hidden limitations in it. And so I find that kind of like focusing on that framework in some unconscious way is, is stopping growth in certain ways. So I, you know, I'm, I'm very torn at this phase of my life because I think there's so much potential for paradigmatic change in physics to actually start to encompass all the consciousness work that people are doing. Um, but I find very few people that are in the physics world and excited to talk about those changes. Hmm. But do you think that there's, if, if just, just to play, if, if hmm. all of the physicists were excited about this and put their minds and hearts and souls into it, do you think that we would discover more? Do you think it is something that is undiscoverable from a scientific standpoint? Um, I think that the discovering more will never end. And I think it's inevitable that a hundred years from now, we're going to look at the things that we take for granted now and realize that they're insane. Like no, what? no question. Like what? Uh, like the, you know, the primacy of materiality, the fact that the fundamental reality is a set of objects instead of experiences. Um, and that's a whole hour long discussion. Okay. In itself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but the fact that the, one of the major kind of debates right now in science is what the heck is consciousness in the first place? Mm -hmm. And people think that it's an emergent phenomena that once you get, for example, a trillion, trillion atoms together in a person, mm -hmm. that then consciousness comes, to me is, is totally backwards. And consciousness exists in these really fundamental basic forms. And the, those forms of consciousness form more and more complex forms of consciousness. There's not fundamentally these unconscious atoms that are forming into consciousness all of a sudden. That to me is a huge leap. It's, it's like a chasm that you have to leap across. All of a sudden there's experience from no experience. Um, I think we'll, we'll, you know, as if I were, if it were my paradigm or whatever, that would yeah. be the main question. How does, how does complex experience generate from very simple experience that we now call things like atoms and molecules? I mean, does it, I don't, I could be so off here, but isn't that the very thing with the big bang? It's like something out of nothing. Yeah. And, and obviously there's a lot of debate about what right. that even means. Right. And, you know, if you ask someone like Einstein, he says, time is not a, what is the quote? He said, time and space are not conditions in which we live. They are methods by which we think. And he's implicitly saying there, at least in my interpretation of it, I can't like speak for Einstein. Right. He's implicitly saying that the Big Bang is not something that happened in a material world before we were around. The Big Bang is a certain way of understanding experience that our minds use mm -hmm. by generating a timeline. And yeah, that's all like, 
I, I'm tempted to not even. I know, I know. Sorry, I can't help it. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, it's hard for me too because it's like it opens up a whole other it rabbit does. hole of discussion, and, and there's way more qualified people than me to talk That's, about that kind yeah. of stuff. Um, but I think when you like open that rabbit hole, the the questions are so deep, and our understanding is so thin. Yeah. Just like when we look back, you know, 500 years ago, like our belief systems, now we think are insane. That that kind of thing never changes, right? We're always going to be discovering new things that force us to relinquish our earlier beliefs. Yeah, which is which is to come full circles. The same thing that you're saying about us as human beings and having this experience, right? It's that same filter on it. Well done, Susan. Thank you <laughs> right. to bring That's it home. <laughs> Totally. Same exact thing. I, yeah. I think we are a microcosm of this universe. There's a, there's a, a writer and poet, Frederick Turner, who, who says, you know, if you look at the Gaia hypothesis, we are the nervous system of the universe. We are, we have the highest that we know of developed organs for sensing detail in the universe. And so we're like these little tiny tendrils on this like ball, <laughs> ball of dirt mm -hmm. and fire that are solely sensing deeper and deeper into the actual structures of reality. Um, I think, I think one metaphor that I'm sure he, Alan Watts, all these people talk about is, you know, you look at the earth 5 billion years ago and then you fast forward it to right now. And you have to see that just like an apple tree produces apples, earth produces people. Mm -hmm. We are born of this thing. We are literally a reverberation of the universe playing out. And, and yet we walk around like we are this independent thing that makes its own mind up about everything. Yeah. And that's a, that's a brain teaser. If you actually call into question, like, I know that I can make decisions about things, uh, or I can go through a decision making process about things, but was I ever fundamentally making any of those decisions? If you believe in physics and the kind of, uh, you know, classical, uh, model of physics, that's a real riddle. You know, how does free will actually exist in that kind of system? Well, especially then you bring in, I keep going back to the rabbit hole. I'm sorry. I just keep like dipping my toe in it. I can't help myself. But then, then you bring in time. And if there's no such thing as time, then time, past and, you know, future, past and present are all at the same time. So then was the decision already made and blah, 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 blah. Mm, but anyway, totally. yeah. There's a great, you know, a great riddle that someone can, a brain teaser that someone can experiment with themselves is if time actually exists, then right now, go into the past and just hang out there. Just go to yesterday. Right. It, 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 you can only go there right now as a set of images right now that exist right now. Mm -hmm. So it's it takes definitely a lot of like letting go of the fact that we are know-it-alls. Yeah. But but really, if I question it, I've I've never been to the past and I've never been to the future. That thing existed, but when it existed, it was in the present moment. And so you can think of time as a certain mechanism to organize experience, a certain way to kind of order certain events and develop a certain causality about the way things work. But that doesn't mean that it's fundamental to the universe. It actually needs to have a method of cognition to exist. God, you know, I think of a metaphor of, of that, that, that that always sort of helped me to understand it as like, but then I've heard had other people say this is incorrect, but is that all time is essentially like in a room and we walk through the room with a flashlight kind of seeing like one thing at a time in a linear way, but it, the every, all the experience was in the room the whole time. It's just the way we are going through it. The way we thought we we're going through it. Is that. Hmm. 
Yeah, I like that. It's kind of, you know, it's like we're looking at such a little tiny way of looking at the world. Yeah. You know, it's like it's so easy to look at like a, you know, look at like a bacterial cell, right? It yeah. has some experience of the world. Yeah. But if, if it was running around saying like, I understand reality, <laughs> we would look at it and be like, you are so off. <laughs> totally. Like you got a lot coming. Yeah. But, but that's that. Why would that end? You know, why would humans have suddenly reached this place where we understand reality all of a sudden? Like, no, we're, we're very, we're very capable monkeys, you know? It's yeah, just, we are literally. Lot, really, literally, you know, <laughs> hairless capable yeah. end monkeys. <laughs> we totally. gotta, we, there's some like, a, I don't know if it's a Hopi Indian phrase, but it says like, we are, we are made of star stuff. And we are also made of shit. <laughs> That's <is> good. <laughs> you know, we gotta, we gotta accept both sides of the coin. Oh, that is good. If that doesn't humble you and kind of bring you back to, you know, <laughs> we are the bacteria cell, we are the monkey, and we are all these other things. Well, so, and I know one of the things that you talked about, you know, you mentioned was this desire for education. Will you tell us a little bit about what is your hope in, in moving into education? Oh, yeah. My, I've been dreaming a lot more lately, you know, trying to let these these childhood desires like live in my body and 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 think about like what would i actually want and and for me when i was 15 is when depression hit and it took 20 years for someone to let me know that oftentimes depression is because of repressed anger mm. and had one person spent 10 seconds to say that and throw that little tiny idea into my head it may have totally reshaped my life wow um and so what I've been questioning a lot now is why why does everyone know quantum physics and the state capitals mm-hmm. and they don't they don't know how to feel their feelings and they don't know how to communicate them. Amen. And, yes. And so and so I think, you know, I think when when people talk about STEM and STEAM and all that sort of thing, what I'd really like to see is that be expanded where just as important as science and math and technology is emotional intelligence and self-awareness practice and training your imagination. And I think that there could be a a really beautiful course of study that's in parallel that you got to do every day when you go to school that is training those internal skills and communication skills. And for me, the, the linchpin of the whole process is that our culture has a stigma on vulnerability. Mm. We, we actually culturally, this is one of the deepest wounds that I can tell exists especially in the western world is that if you're vulnerable you believe it will be a sign of weakness yeah and everybody is hiding it yep. Yep. <laughs> you're not alone if you're yep. feeling it everybody's hiding it everybody wishes for that intense shared vulnerability and deep support and really knowing that you have community and our very fear of it protects us from ever finding out if it's there yeah. because we hold those needs into ourselves and so I, I feel like, you know, whether it's a course of study that could be implemented in our schooling system, whether it's figuring out new ways to kind of create activities for adults to engage in vulnerable communication with each other. Yeah. Uh, that's the thing that gets me most interested right now. How do we how do we shift the stigma on vulnerability and kind of let go of these generation after generation of internal trauma that we've been carrying around? Because all of us want support and all of us want community and we're actually isolating ourselves more and more from it as time goes on. 
Oh, it's so good. I think of Brene Brown's work, right? Of mm. how she, what she's brought around the word vulnerability and how, and shame. And, um, she's, I think she's done an incredible job of bringing that out. And I will say, you know, of having school age children, I am seeing now more of them teaching emotional intelligence in school. Um, but again, it's sort of, I don't want to say it's an afterthought, but it's, it's because the school wants to, it's not something that's built into, you know, the mm. California state curriculum. Um, and so if that could be a part of every school and, and particularly in areas that need it, where they, these children experience trauma at such a deep level every day, right. Um, of not mm. knowing if food's going to be at home or uh, somebody's shot or, you know, just who mm. knows what. And to not have the tools and resources to process through that, whew, you know, yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's tricky, especially because it's the hardest thing. Well, maybe this is not true, but it's, it's hard to quantify yeah. compared to a multiple choice test on state capitals. That's right. It's very hard to quantify. But the, you know, the riddle that a, a, a friend Tom said years ago is, how is it that all the things that truly matter to us are not quantifiable? Mm. And why are we so concerned about quantification if when we ask ourselves what's important, it's never the quantifiable thing? So I think, I think actually the, the blessing in disguise is that more and more people with everything are feeling empty. Yeah, and there's no greater motivation to realize the importance of emotional work and emotional intelligence than that none of the other stuff matters when you have it. <laughs> yes. Oh, it's so good, Jeff. Thank you so much. This has been just, you know, for fulfilling in heart, mind, and soul, this interview. Um, oh, thanks, so thank you for sharing this. If people want to find out more about you or collaborate with you or your work, where can they find out more? Uh, my website is the word beast, B-E-A dot S-T. There's no dot com or anything like that. So they can go there and see some of my artwork and uh, write me an email if they're interested in talking about any of this. Awesome. And then you also have a great Kickstarter. If you don't mind, just tell us a quick thing about that. Oh, totally. It's it's the Kickstarter's finished. P Pre-orders are available. If you type in the phrase slow dance, um, like everyone knows from high school, uh, I made a kinetic sculpture that is exploring the limits of human visual perception and basically makes objects appear to move in slow motion right in front of you. Um, so I, I, I owe 2000 people, one of these sculptures from the crowdfunding <laughs> campaign. Um, and we're accepting pre-orders. We expect to ship, uh, sometime this summer. Awesome. Thank you again, Jeff. Thanks, Susanna. Appreciate your time. I hope you all enjoyed that episode as much as I did and would love to continue the conversation. So please feel free to reach out on our Facebook page, which is Susanna Scully, S-U-Z-A-N-N-A-H-S-C-U-L-L-Y. You can find us at the same Twitter handle, Susanna Scully, and also over at Instagram. And our website is SusannaScully.com. So keep it pretty simple there. Thank you all for listening in and look forward to chatting with you next time.